From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The nation's new energy policy is just three months old, but some lawmakers say it doesn't go far enough to wean us off foreign oil. And they worry that the U.S. will be in trouble if we don't put in place some tough measures to spur conservation. We will become like Gulliver in Lilliput, tied down and subject to the whims of smaller nations who have oil unless we act. Also, one man's quest to spread the ways of the Lakota Indians to the rest of America. Survival, survival. If the whole system were to fall right now, there's not many young people that would survive. They've been taught how to, you know, live with groceries and paying bills and taxes instead of how to live if all else fails. Red Bear's vision and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The price of gasoline may have dropped a bit recently, but the politics of oil is still center stage in Washington. In fact, there's a bit of a backlash against the major oil companies in Congress. This past week brought proposals to conserve oil, strip industry subsidies, and impose a new tax on oil companies. And some lawmakers are even saying industry executives may have lied to Congress during this exchange in a Senate committee hearing. Did your company or any representatives in your companies participate in Vice President Cheney's uh, energy task force in 2001? The meeting? No. Sir? No. We did not, no. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young joins us from Capitol Hill to talk about this and other issues. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Steve. So, Jeff, it seems that this controversy over Vice President Cheney's energy task force simply just won't go away. Yeah, you know, the administration probably thought this was settled last year. I mean, the Supreme Court turned down efforts to open the task force's records. You think that was that. But with that question from New Jersey Democratic Senator Frank Lautenberg, well, the issue is back. The Washington Post reported on a White House document indicating that those oil companies did meet with the Energy Task Force. The oil companies defend the CEO's answers, but Senator Lautenberg wants the attorney general to investigate. It's bad enough to hide the truth from the American people, but it's illegal to make false statements to the Congress whether you've raised your right hand or you haven't. Now, if the Justice Department takes this up, uh, it could make public some information about just who had the vice president's ear while he was writing energy policy. Now, Jeff, just this summer, it looked like the oil companies were getting a pretty good ride in Washington. They got what lots of tax breaks and subsidies from the energy bill that Congress just passed. What happened? Well, in short, $3 a gallon gas happened right after Hurricane Katrina. And when the oil industry reported quarterly profits of somewhere around $30 billion, well, that just added fuel to that fire. So there is a strong desire in Congress now to show some further action on energy prices. So just exactly what kind of action are we seeing? A Senate tax panel approved something very similar to a windfall profits tax on oil companies. There's serious talk about repealing about a billion dollars worth of those tax breaks that the oil companies got in the energy bill. And the action I think might prove most meaningful is a new bill aimed at cutting oil imports through conservation measures. Uh, Conservation? Pardon me for being a bit skeptical, but I think going back to the Nixon administration, uh, politicians have been calling for oil conservation while consumption and imports have just kept rising. What's different this time? 
Well, it's true we have a pretty spotty track record when it comes to conservation, but this this bill seems serious. It aims to cut the country's oil consumption so that 25 years from now, we'd be using 10 million barrels a day less than what current projections show us to be using. And it has impressive bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate, including the very conservative Republican Senator Sam Brownback of Kansas. Brownback says those high gas prices make this politically feasible. I think we're at a moment now where we can do this, that there was a mental sea change that we saw in America when gasoline hit $3 a gallon. And people said, we've got to do something different. So, Jeff, what do they want to do to conserve oil? Well, the bill calls for more hybrid vehicles and alternative fuel vehicles, and it offers major incentives to the industry to make them and to consumers to buy them. And it places a lot of emphasis on agriculture-based fuels, sort of spurring the the next wave of ethanol-type fuels. And that, of course, wins a lot of support from the farm states. Now, Jeff, consumers have already begun to change their buying habits due to high gas prices by buying hybrids and smaller and foreign cars. But what about an increase in the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy numbers? Uh, That issue has been stalled for years on Capitol Hill. It is a very tough, very divisive political issue, so this bill just leaves CAFE out in the name of reaching some consensus. Now, a lot of energy policy experts that I've talked to say that's okay, but somewhere down the road, if you want to reduce oil consumption, you're going to have to raise CAFE. And what this bill does essentially is just passes the buck on that. Jeff, if high gas prices spurred all this, uh, what's going to happen to the political momentum uh, if gas prices drop a bit more? I mean, just today I was able to buy gas for less than $2 a gallon, only a little bit less, but less than $2 a gallon. Well, clearly, the the high prices are what's giving this a a sense of urgency. But the bill's sponsors are also linking this very explicitly to national security, making the argument that oil imports are making us vulnerable to a few energy-supplying countries, and some of those countries, frankly, just don't like us very much. And if you look at uh, polls of what voters care about, national security and fuel prices both rank pretty high up there. So I think it's a combination that could give this bill some legs. Well, keep us posted on these developments, please. Indeed. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome, Steve. A new coalition government has formed in Germany with the liberal Social Democrats and conservative Christian Democrats sharing power. The Christian Democrats' Angela Merkel is the new chancellor, and gone is the Green Party, which for the past seven years was part of the so-called Red-Green Coalition government led by the Social Democrats. With me now to talk about uh, this turn of events in Germany is Mark Hertzgard. He's the environment correspondent for The Nation magazine, and he just got back from Germany. Mark, uh, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me, Steve. First, uh, give us a look back at what happened in the September election. What were the main issues during the campaign leading up to the elections, and, and how did the Greens go wrong? Uh, The Greens, I suppose, went wrong by being the junior partner to the SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, uh, led by uh, Gerhard Schroeder, who had campaigned on a promise to dramatically cut unemployment in Germany. And Germany has remained mired in deep, widespread, chronic unemployment. And that was by far the biggest issue of this campaign. And it's why the uh, uh, Red-Green Coalition fell. Although it should be noted, Steve, that everyone 
in Germany expected the conservative coalition to uh, dramatically beat the SPD, and that didn't happen. It was pretty much of a draw, and so that's why we now have in Germany this so-called grand coalition government between the conservatives and the social democrats that, frankly, neither side is very happy about. The Greens themselves did okay in the election, right? In fact, they had a little larger margin than they had seven years ago, right? There was like about 8%. Yeah, they went up from 6.7% to 8%. But some say that maybe the Greens hurt the Social Democrats because some of the measures they're calling for uh, may have been seen as as actually aggravating the unemployment uh, problem, uh, you know, putting pressure on shutting down uh, coal uh, mining, uh, uh, talking about getting rid of the nuclear power plants, that sort of thing. I really don't see that. I think that vote was uh, very strongly against the SPD government above all. Uh, Gerhard Schroeder, the SPD chancellor, had promised very visibly that he was going to reduce unemployment. Uh, when he came into office, it was $3 million. He promised to bring it down. Uh, and in fact, here at the end of his seven years as chancellor, it was up to $5 million nearly. And I think given that, it was very hard for him to get returned to power. And the Greens, for that matter, actually make a very strong argument that their environmental policies have actually added jobs in Germany, especially through their landmark legislation, the so-called Renewable Energy Sources Act. And this commits Germany to a massive increase, using market mechanisms largely, a massive increase in solar, wind, biomass, and other uh, renewable energies that have already got 150,000 workers in those uh, industries and the promise of many more through future exports because that Renewable Energy Sources Law has been copied, at least in part, by 41 other countries, including China, which, of course, is going to be buying many billions of dollars of energy technology in the years to come. So I don't think that the Greens uh, really hurt the uh, the SPD uh, re-election chances there. It was really Gerhard Schroeder's own doing, I'm afraid. The Greens' uh, popularity has ebbed and flowed uh, during the seven years that they were in that red-green government. I'm thinking at one point uh, the Green foreign minister sent troops into Kosovo. Uh, Greens are pretty pacifist. And yet, of course, he opposed the uh, the U.S. and Iraq. Um, In this process, to what extent did the Greens lose their, their political voice, the sense of who they are? Who are the Greens these days? The Greens are evolving. They were founded 25 years ago as a pacifist, uh, feminist, ecological party. Of course, coming into government seven years ago, they have had to do some compromising. And no compromise has been more difficult for the party itself than over the transformation of Germany's foreign policy. The Greens did control the foreign ministry. Uh, They had Joschka Fischer, the foreign minister, uh, longtime co-founder of the Greens. And he actually got pelted by a... um, paint bomb at a Green Party Congress after pushing through uh, the use of German troops in peacekeeping missions in Kosovo in Afghanistan. Many of the uh, the more left uh, elements of the party did not like that. However, then a few months later, uh, it was Fischer who really led the European opposition to the Bush administration's drive to war. And Fischer indeed became the single most popular politician in all of Germany. And that's going to be a challenge for the Greens now as they go forward because because Fischer has taken himself out now of the party leadership, saying it's time for a new generation to write the next chapter in the history of the Green Party. You know, Mark, for a while it looked like uh, Angela Merkel, the conservative leader who's now the new chancellor, uh, was going to try to reverse the Red-Green Agreement to phase out nuclear power by, what, the year 2020? Now, she wasn't able to succeed with that plan. What happened? 
Yes, Angela Merkel campaigned on the idea of uh, slowing down the nuclear phase out. She wanted to uh, continue a German nuclear industry. She said there's going to be nuclear exports to China and India and elsewhere. And as a patriot, she said, I want those to be German exports. Uh, But when there were the negotiations in November around the new coalition government between the SPD and the CDU, the conservatives, her position did not prevail. The SPD, the Social Democrats, had already been given the environment ministry, and they were not going to retreat on the uh, atomic phase-out. And therefore, the phase-out of nuclear power in Germany will proceed, uh, is expected to be completed by the year 2020. What do you see as the big environmental challenges facing this new coalition government? I think the big environmental challenge facing the new coalition government in Germany is going to be to maintain environmental quality and standards and vision at the same time that they are digging their way out of a major economic crisis. Uh, You've got 5 million, almost 5 million Germans unemployed, especially high unemployment in the former East Germany. You've simply got to do something about that. No government is going to stay in power if they don't uh, tackle that problem. And, of course, the temptation is always to uh, cut corners on environmental matters uh, in the name of of economic prosperity. And uh, I think that will be the great, great challenge facing this new government in Germany. Mark Hertzgard is the environment correspondent for The Nation magazine. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure, Steve. Coming up, learning to live off the land 21st century Indian style. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. The American West was once teeming with wildlife, including the great herds of buffalo. But these days, you're more likely to see cows. So the World Wildlife Fund, in partnership with the American Prairie Foundation, is working to get the prairies of northeast Montana back to the Wild West they once were. They've set aside 32,000 acres as a refuge for the critters that belong to these glaciated plains. They've got prairie dogs, ferrets, elk, antelope, and now finally, bison. The project went to South Dakota, where there are a few remaining genetically pure bison, rounded up a dozen and a half for a starter herd, and just released them onto the Montana wild grasslands. Kurt Frazee directs the project, and he joins us from Bozeman, Montana. Hello, sir. Hi, good to be here. To begin with, what is a genetically pure bison. And why is this a specification that needs to be made? It's important because uh, there may be about 500,000 bison in North America, but about 96% of those are being bred for small humps and fat rumps and ease of handling. And the wild bison, bison that are in conservation herds, may be only about 20,000. And of those, uh, most of those have cattle genes mixed in. So there's some genetic pollution that we don't know what the consequences may be. So for conservationists, we feel as long as we can get a pure bison genome, we ought to save it. Okay, I need an ecology lesson here. You know, I look out at the Great Plains and, you know, it looks like some grass, but... To the trained eye, it's quite a sophisticated ecosystem. Why are bison so important to this particular ecosystem, the Great Plains? Well, bison were, uh, they were probably one of the two key, what we call keystone species out there. The other one was the prairie dog. We estimate when Europeans settled in this continent, there were maybe 30 to 60 million bison. 
And consequently, the bison is important for scavengers and predators. There's a big protein bundle. But also, as a major grazer out there, it created this mosaic of grazing intensities that move over the landscape in large herds. And consequently, the wildlife of the Great Plains adapted to this bison grazing. And uh, an indication of maybe uh, what's gone wrong with, with the loss of the bison is that grassland birds are undergoing steeper declines in their populations than any other group of birds in North America. So if I were standing there in the Great Plains in this pretty much original grasslands part of the Great Plains, it sounds like, right. where you're going to have these bison out on the plains. What would I see? What would it look like? What would it sound like? Well, if you're out there in the spring, it's a cacophony of bird calls. It's absolutely, it wakes you up about 4.30 in the morning, and it's uh, you hear mating calls, courtship calls. And uh, if the bison are nearby, uh, you'll hear them grunting to each other. They have this wonderful grunt sound that they communicate with. Uh, the bison calves are constantly grunting, looking for their mom, keeping up with their mom. And what does this bison grunt sound like? Um, it goes more or less like, <clears throat> that's not very good, though. My bison friends are going to laugh at me. <laughs> right. You're better than I am. That's good. <laughs> so it's really a rich sound. And uh, the view of the bison grazing, the prairie dogs... Of course, prairie dogs barking is another aspect of the prairie ecosystem out there. Uh, prairie dogs uh, uh, are important food items for a lot of the raptors, golden eagles, and hawks. And so there's this real mosaic, like you said. If you just drive through quickly, you don't notice it. But if you stop and look, you say, wow, there's an incredible abundance and diversity of life. The area that we're working in, we just had some plant work done. We think there's about 600 species of plants out there. There's more than 200 species of birds, and so it's, it's quite a remarkable place. What do you think a park like this is going to bring to the local community? It's got tremendous potential for drawing in tourists from outside, and the economy of the communities can no longer stand on the single leg of agriculture. And so we think this is a unique opportunity we have in this to bring back what was once there in the Great Plains, the spectacular wildlife, and kind of have this diversity of land uses of prairie reserves, but also ranching where it makes sense, too. We haven't lost anything. We, the bison are still around. We just need to put them back out there, and, and they'll thrive. All they need is some space and time. This is going to be the home where the buffalo roam, huh? That's right. As I look at it, putting bison back on the ground this week feels like we're turning the corner, and that's a very exciting feeling to have, that we can, in fact, bring back what was once there in, in, uh, in the wild bison and other wildlife of the Great Plains. It's a very good feeling. Kurt Frazee is the director of the Northern Great Plains Program for the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks for taking this time. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. While the World Wildlife Society is seeking to expand the range of the wild buffalo, a Passamaquoddy Indian man who has adopted the ways of the Lakota Sioux is bringing the culture of the buffalo to New England. The Lakota believe that they share the earth as equal partners with their animal relatives, especially the buffalo, which at one time was the central provider for nearly all of life's needs. Today, with the wild herds of buffalo just about gone, many Lakota are building more domesticated herds, and among them is Justin Redbear Mudgett. He's planning what he says is an authentic Lakota tribal village on his 40-acre bison farm near Hillsboro, New Hampshire. He wants tourists to visit, but his dream is to build a community where people can live in harmony with nature. Sean Cole of member station WBUR in Boston drove to New Hampshire to learn more about Mr. Mudgett and his vision, but there was an unexpected stop along the way. 
I'm on the side of the road in um, Hillsborough, New Hampshire, and I'm out of gas. And uh, I'm waiting for Justin Mudgett, also known as Red Bear, to uh, come and pick me up, and uh, we're going to go get some gas. This is really embarrassing. It was a beautiful day to wait for an Indian. I say Indian because it's what Red Bear calls himself, calls all Native Americans, though sometimes he uses the word aboriginal. He arrived the way an Indian should arrive, preceded by traditional music blaring from the stereo of his black pickup truck. We had talked a lot on the phone about why he's starting a Lakota village when he's descended from the Passamaquoddy tribe, about how he's trying to escape the cage of modern culture and literally go native on his buffalo farm. I pictured him tall and dark with a map of South Dakota on his face. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, Red Bear is short and has a few important teeth missing, and he's as white as me. He's half Indian, though he thinks of himself as full-blooded. He's a lot of different things all at once. Friendly, idealistic, with some pretty controversial anti-government survival of the fittest opinions. He almost always wears his animal skins. And when I thanked him for taking me to get gas, he said, I had to get get cigarettes anyway. (laughs) Lately, he's been trying to quit by smoking a wild plant called Colt's Foot. He told me there are all kinds of wild foods and medicines growing around us, which is what they should be teaching kids in school, he says. Survival, survival. If the whole system were to fall right now, there's not many young people that would survive that kind of a fall because they've been taught how to, you know, live with groceries and paying bills and taxes and things like that instead of how to, how to live if, if all else fails which is what seems to be coming about nowadays. See all this uh, Louisiana crap. Meantime, I can't even survive a drive to New Hampshire without help. I fill up Red Bear's gas can. He finds himself in a conversation with a total stranger, a guy who says he's seen Red Bear around and wants to know more about the village he's planning. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it was nice to meet you. Um, come up anytime. Um, the, nu- the number on that card is different than on the truck. Right now, this is only an answer. It's easy to say come up anytime, but Red Bear's farm, the sacred buffalo farm it's called, is at the end of a circuitous dirt road miles from the main drag. He says he hopes the distance will add to the mystique. The entrance to the pasture where the village will be is marked by an American flag with a picture of an Indian on it. Deep in the clearing is the Council Lodge, a 22-foot-high teepee Red Bear put up himself. At the time I visited him, it was the only one standing. There will probably be, I'd say, five or six more teepees spread about in this area. A lot of this will be tilled. The dirt. Right, the dirt. We'll collect the buffalo poops and pile them in so that we have a lot of fuel. Fuel for the central village fire that will burn day and night. This is also where Red Bear's 14-head buffalo herd used to be, but he moved them to another part of the farm. He cuts open a hay bale and throws some of it over the electric fence to get the buffalo moving around. Wakan is the head guy. There he is. See him? The one with the tall back. Yeah, he's the breeder. He's my sacred man. He's He's the stud? Yeah, he's my best friend. Part and parcel to the culture was the buffalo. The reason that the Lakota knew how to live is because they watched the buffalo. 
The Lakota are Midwestern Plains Indians. Red Bear says they're closer to their roots than a lot of other tribes. He calls them the last fighters, which is why he wants this to be a Lakota village. We sat together in the council lodge and talked about his plans for maybe three hours. He told me he was inviting five or six Indians from Pine Ridge Reservation, a Lakota reservation in South Dakota, to be his tribe. What you're sitting in right here is a tourist attraction, okay? This is where people are going to come to learn the tan hides, the survival techniques, and picking roots, different plants, different trees. But the key essential thing that we are doing, what I have been trying to get to, has been tribalizing. What does that mean, tribalized? It's almost like your family, except that they're families by choice. We tried to create a democracy of people that vote to, to choose who they want as a leader. Well, I just don't personally think that that many people should be voting on one person to lead them. I just think it should be smaller groups of people that choose their leaders. Tribes. Tribes. Pooling their resources, working for a common goal, letting the group fulfill the needs of the individual. And that might sound naive or quaint or worse yet, cute. But Red Bear says the people who think it's cute are the ones who will actually come up and see the village and listen to him. Yahweh, Yahweh, This is Red Bear. A long time ago when I was really young, I always vowed that I was going to save my people. And then as I got into like, you know, eight or nine or ten, I started thinking about being in villages and living with Indians in the village, you know, and being a great chief, you know, being a war chief, you know. He tried it before. About 12 years ago, when he was 18, he and his now ex-wife set up teepees and tents in the woods behind a bed and breakfast in Connecticut. And that didn't work because I was living across from the mall. They were getting ready to build a circuit city there. They're, you know. From there, Red Bear worked security at Foxwoods, the Mashantucket Pequot Casino in Connecticut, and attended a powwow there where he met the famous Indian activist and movie actor Russell Means. Means encouraged him to follow his vision, to join the American Indian cause. But Mother Culture, as Red Bear calls it, was pulling him in another direction. He and his wife had started a lucrative bondage and domination sex club, lucrative enough to support four kids and a fairly significant crack habit. Soon, their relationship bottomed out, and soon after that, he was in a horrible car crash. He nearly died. He wanted to, but he merely lost part of his memory, some of the dexterity in one hand, and several important teeth. He was all alone, and all he could think to do was go out to Pine Ridge Reservation to die, he says. And what they taught me was is that I wanted to live. I got out there and there was every atrocity, every despair, every sadness, pain, heartache, happiness, laughter, joy, you know, in the, the most dangerous, ugly, nasty situation, somebody will make a joke and make lighthearted of the whole thing. It was at Pine Ridge that he adopted the Lakota as his tribe and that they, eventually, adopted him. It was there, too, that he first spent a lot of time around Buffalo. Not too long after that, he came up to New Hampshire to say goodbye to a dying friend, and he just stayed, developing a relationship with his friend's widow. A couple years ago, they found out that there were buffalo farms in New Hampshire, and they decided to start one. Now, they're selling the meat at farmer's markets and eating it themselves. But buffalo aren't just food, Red Bear says. They're family. I don't ever call them its or creatures or beasts or 
animals or anything, I call them people. They're, they're my people. They're, that right now, this is our tribe at the moment. And you walk in there with them? Yeah. Isn't that dangerous? Of course. But then I wouldn't be, I couldn't call them my people. I'm as much of it in a cage as they are. I can look in at them and say, I pity you because you're inside this fence. And they can look at me and say, I pity you because you're inside that fence. You know? And Red Bear's ultimate goal is to escape the fence and to help everybody else escape the fence. He's hoping that once he and the other members of the village start living the old way in earnest, other people will get the message and start their own tribes. Even the tourists themselves might then come and say, hey, you know, we think what you're doing is good. We don't totally agree with doing Lakota, so we're going to go over here and do our tribe and we're going to do it uh, uh, Celtic Druid, you know? And I go, booyah, we'll help you. Cool. I know a lot about Celtic Druidry. But I was going to say, so the tourists, it sounds like, are a means to an end. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, a means to a beginning. What I call the Taker era is over, and the Aboriginal era is dawning. Takers. Takers explain that. Takers are people who take more than they need from the earth and don't give anything back. In other words, almost everybody. It's not Red Bear's word. It comes from the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which inspired the movie Instinct with Anthony Hopkins and Cuba Gooding Jr. Session's not over. Till you say so. Right. The taker. Instinct is about a man who lived peaceably among wild gorillas before being ripped from their tribe by poachers, takers. In the forest, he had regained his human animal instinct, like Red Bear says he has, like Red Bear says we'll all need to when the project of modern culture finally fails. We're always talking about how kids have everything. They know everything when they're born. Everybody says that. Oh, they know so much when they're born and then they lose it. Well, that's, that's instinct that they lose. We condition it out of them. He's tied a buffalo. Where? He's tied a buffalo in his gate. In the gate? Uh-huh. Red Bear's girlfriend, Diane, has two sons from her previous marriage. They just had a third together, a little girl. He says he plans to raise them according to the old ways, and that Diane's oldest boy, who's four now, has already expressed interest in being an Indian. And no other Indian in the world, I don't care, and if they did, I'd kill them, but no Indian in the world is going to look at him and say, you can't be an Indian, because look at your hair, look at your skin. Nobody's going to tell him that, because he's a kid. Well, there's some kids that happen to be like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old that want to be Indian too, you know. You can't tell those kids they can't. Just like you can't tell him he can't, you know. Since my day at the village to be, Red Bear's put up two more teepees, a 16-footer and an 18-footer. His Lakota friends should be arriving any day, if they haven't already. At some point, in one of our phone conversations after my visit, Red Bear told me something that was strangely comforting. He said if down the road it looks like Mother Culture is really starting to crumble and all the systems we've built are shutting down, he said he wanted me to do everything in my power to get to the village. You'll have a place here, he said. And if that day ever comes, my number one priority will be to make sure I have enough gas. For Living on Earth, I'm Sean Cole. You gave me stars in my eyes out there.
Just ahead, talking healthy turkey for the holiday season. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund, for excellence in communications and education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. We're coming up on Turkey Day, and that means the bird is factoring pretty big on upcoming menus. One of the healthy choices you can make this year is antibiotic-free turkey. Joining the trend is the Bon Appetit Management Company, a major California-based food supplier that will send three-quarters of a million pounds of turkey to restaurants this year. And the company has demanded its turkey farmers stop feeding their birds antibiotics. To find out more about what antibiotic-fed livestock can do to consumers, we spoke with Margaret Mellon. She's the director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington. Hi there. Hello there. Tell me, why is eating an antibiotic-fed turkey a bad thing for us? It's a good question. Um, A lot of people don't really understand that the same antibiotics that are given us in doctor's offices are also fed in enormous quantities to animals that are being produced for food. I'm talking about the penicillins, the sulfa drugs, the erythromycin that we're all familiar with, and we all get uh, to treat our various diseases and infections. Those very same drugs are used um, out on the farm. And of course, today we're talking about turkey, so we'll emphasize the fact that they're used in turkey production, but they're also used to produce chickens, beef, and swine. Now, how much is a lot of antibiotics? Well, about eight times the amount of the antibiotics used in humans are used in animals. So we're talking about something on the order of 13 million pounds of antibiotics a year that are from the same classes that are used in human medicine that are given to uh, food animals just to promote growth or uh, compensate for stress. So what would happen to me if I eat a turkey that uh, was fed a lot of antibiotics? Would it make me sick? Well, the turkey wouldn't make you sick, but the bacteria that are found in the guts of the turkey certainly could. And if those bacteria, which are often you know, found on the carcass uh, that you purchase in the store, if those were resistant to antibiotics as a result of the antibiotics they'd been fed back on the farm, those bacteria could give you food poisoning. And if they did, that poisoning might not be treatable when you went to the doctor's office. Now, could you give me some examples of how consumption of of antibiotic-fed livestock, uh, poultry, turkeys has, has affected humans? Well, diseases are caused by microorganisms, some of which come from animals. Uh, Good examples of the kinds of diseases are food poisoning, urinary tract infections, and a lot of post-operative infections that you get in the hospital. Um, Just to give you an example, um, I have a friend who had a urinary tract infection that was resistant to the sulfa drug that she was first given. Because that drug didn't work, her urinary tract infection progressed to a kidney infection. 
and uh, she was uh, out of work for almost six months. It means a lot when a drug doesn't work. If, if we don't use antibiotics, wouldn't this make food more costly? Um, not necessarily. We know from uh, experience in Europe that changes of the kind we'd like to see happen in the U.S. have been made and that there haven't been uh, any appreciable increases in food prices at all. And I think with that, our producers are as savvy as those in Europe, and they could make the changes without resulting in higher food costs here as well. So for turkeys, uh, the Bon Appetit uh, company has, has asked that uh, their producers not use uh, antibiotics in their feed. But any other uh, major food producers who have also taken this step? Uh, the McDonald's Corporation, uh, Compass uh, Incorporated, a big food service company. Um, there are a number of uh, fast food companies that have made some sort of a public statement that they're going to seek out or require that their producers not use antibiotics. There's a patchwork of activity in the private sector that is moving our food production in a direction of not uh, relying on overuse of antibiotics, and it's all to the good. Okay. Now, between now and Thanksgiving, I want to go out and purchase a turkey for my family to have at the big banquet. How do I find a turkey that hasn't been grown using uh, antibiotics in its feed? Well, it's a lot harder than uh, I wish it was uh, for you to do that. If you don't have access to one of the restaurants uh, served by Bon Appetit, I think your best bet is to go out and buy an organic turkey. A federally certified organic turkey um, has been grown without the use of any antibiotics for any purpose, and that's the most uh, reliable choice that you have right now. Margaret Mellon is the director of the Food and Environment Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving meal. Thank you. Just ahead, why toast always lands on the floor, butter side down. First, this note on emerging science from Emily Torgrimson. Are you a type A personality? Do you ever find yourself muttering psychotically while maneuvering your SUV in and out of traffic? Or cutting in line to see the newest Vin Diesel movie? Scientists have long believed that individuals with hostile personalities, bullies to put it politely, are at higher risk of heart disease. But a new study has found that this danger may differ drastically between the sexes. Researchers looking at health data from a group of Nova Scotians have concluded that hostility is a good predictor of recurrent heart problems in men, but not so in women. The study used a standard test for measuring hostility based on indicators such as cynicism, social avoidance, and hostile affect. Scientists tracked the health of the group for four years and then analyzed the data after adjusting it for other heart risks such as smoking and obesity. They discovered that highly hostile men suffered from recurrent coronary heart disease at twice the rate of their mellower counterparts. But highly hostile women were no more likely to have heart problems than those women who tested for low hostility. It's unclear just why type A personalities would affect men and women so differently, but it may have something to do with the way members of each sex express their hostility. So, until researchers learn more, men who stiff waiters and kick puppies will continue to pay a higher physical price than equally bad-tempered women. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Emily Torgrimson. 
You know the situation. You're sitting there in a crowded concert hall, and you feel like someone is staring at you. So you turn around, and sure enough, someone three rows back is giving you the eye. Does that mean you can actually sense when someone is checking you out? Here to answer some of life's more puzzling questions, or to put it another way, the weird science of the extremely ordinary, is Jay Ingram. He's the host of the Canadian Discovery Channel's Daily Planet and author of the new book, The Velocity of Honey and More Science of Everyday Life. Hi, Jay. Hi, Steve. Okay, how fast is honey? Well, (laughs) it depends on the height you're dropping it onto your toast. The higher it is, the faster it's going to fall. It also coils up in a really interesting way on your toast, too. You know... Honey dripping on toast is just one of the many everyday experiences that has really interesting science in it. So why is it that toast, when it falls on the floor, lands butter and, for that matter, honey side down? Well, it's not Murphy's Law that something will go wrong, and it's not even the possibility that maybe 50% of the time it lands butter side up, but you don't think about that later. You always curse it when it ends butter side down and you remember those. It's actually a very simple answer, and that is it really has to do with the height of the table above the floor. And most kitchen tables where you're eating your toast are about the same height. And here's the thing. If the toast tips off the edge of the table, then it starts to rotate. So when it's rotating, if you gave it enough time, it could rotate a full 360 and land butter side up and you'd be okay. Or... If the kitchen table were just inches above the floor, the toast could tilt, but not quite fall over. It could, you know, rotate less than 90 degrees and settle back so that it was still butter side up. And it turns out that toast falling off the edge of a table and rotating, if it's a typical table, doesn't have enough time to do a full 360 and will land butter side down. Just about every time. I'd be willing to say every time unless you fling it so it frisbees its way across the floor and ends butter side up. (laughs) But wait a second. You're saying scientists sit around studying which side the toast is going to land on when it goes off the table. Yeah, so there's two ways of reacting to this. One, I detect in your voice a kind of arching of the eyebrows. What? Scientists do this? But, you know, scientists have senses of humor, too. And I'm quite sure that those scientists who have investigated this are doing it Partly to collect the data, because it's kind of interesting. Uh, Partly to just amuse themselves and hopefully others. You know, what's so funny about this book, Jay, uh, are the lengths that these scientists seem to want to go to describe these phenomenon. They set up these big and complicated, and sometimes they must be costly experiments trying to unravel these things. And, you know, I I guess the the chapter that you wrote in your book, The Velocity of Honey, that that really attracted me about this extensive experimentation is this, are you staring at me, this chapter? (laughs) And um, this is what happens when you pull up at a stoplight. Jay, you should tell the story. You wrote the book. Well, this is actually, I think, a fantastic experiment because what they wanted to know was uh, if somebody stares at you, do you generally interpret it as a threatening gesture? And... What is your reaction? But they, uh, the psychologists who did this thought the best way to do this was to do it at a traffic light. So what they did was uh, they had somebody come up on a scooter, stop at a red light, and then wait for a car to pull up beside them. And then the scooter driver turned and just stared at the driver. And then you can't just go and ask the driver what their reaction is, but you can do one really neat thing, which is time 
how fast it takes the driver of the car to get to the other side of the intersection when the light turns green. <laughs> and then you can, of course, set up a control where you actually have the scooters sitting next to the car, but they're not staring at each other. So drivers that were stared at took considerably less time, like one, I think it was 1.2 seconds less. Now, you, you know, because maybe you just want to race the scooter. So they eliminated that by substituting a pedestrian that stared at the car instead of the scooter. And this was a, a neat way of saying, look, something was happening in this situation that made people behave differently. And they even tried the weirdest things because, other weird things, I should say, because, you know, maybe they were driving away because they just thought it was strange that someone would stare at them, not, not some sort of thing that could actually be connected with staring. So they had a guy um, actually sitting on a sidewalk with a hammer and... <laughs> picking apart the sidewalk with his hammer when the car pulled up. Now, that's incongruous, right? Yeah. But um, people didn't pull away as quickly. So it actually had to do with the, the sort of dominance hierarchy aspect of being stared at. Jay Ingram, I want you to tell us the science of love at first sight. Is there such a thing? Well, you know, I think that the, there's, the science of love at first sight is probably uh, fairly skimpy. I can tell you one thing, though, and this is really my favorite example of this, and it has to do with looking in people's eyes. There was a very neat experiment done a long time ago now, I think in the 1950s, showing that dilated... Let me, let me set this up. Let's say that you, Steve, are walk into a party, you meet a woman, you look into her eyes, and you notice unconsciously that her pupils are dilated. Well, there's an automatic human reaction that when you look into somebody's eyes and see that their pupils are dilated, that says to you, again unconsciously, that they are interested in you. And you can show that pupils dilate when looking at objects of interest, even when people are just hungry and you show them a beautiful chocolate cake. Their pupils will dilate. <laughs> This is why women used to put drops of belladonna in their eyes. Beautiful woman, of course, is a translation, um, you know, centuries ago, because they knew if they dilated their pupils, then men who looked into their eyes would think the women were interested in them, and then the men would be interested in the women, and this would start something going. Now, this book is mostly fun, but there's a scary chapter in here, Jay. It's the one called Time Passes Faster. Can you explain what that's all about? Well, we all know... Uh, if we've been living long enough, as t as you get older, time seems to move more quickly. And, you know, I think this is pretty common. I mean, you remember summer vacation when you were in grade six or grade five? It it seemed to take forever. Well, summer vacations now, are, you know, you barely get your breath before you have to start work again in the fall. So the, one of the questions is, why does this, does this happen? And it seems that one of our biological clocks in our brain slows down with age, just as many things slow down. And when a slower clock, more events seem to happen in a given time, so it, it feels like time is moving faster. The more interesting aspect, though, to me, is just how much faster is it? And a guy named Robert Lemlich came up with an equation in the uh, mid-70s or so, and he argued that here's the, here's the really depressing part of this. Let's say that you're 40 right now, and you're going to live to 80, so you feel like, hey, I've got half my life ahead of me. Lemlich says, well, you may have literally another 40 years, half your life, but it's not going to feel like that. And he did some calculations and showed that um, when you're 40, time is probably seeming to pass by. Subjective time is going twice as fast as it did when you were 10. On that basis, 
you've really actually already lived more than 70% of your subjective life. So you only have, you think you have half your life left, it's only going to feel like 30% of your life. And by the time you're 60, that 20 years is only going to feel like 13% of your life. Oh, my God. So at age 20, then, you feel like half your life is over. That's right. And you know what's interesting? There, there was a passage written in 1837 by England's poet laureate Robert Southey. He says, live as long as you may. The first 20 years are the longest half of your life. They appear so while they're passing. They seem to have been when we look back on them and they take up more room in our memory than all the years that succeed them. Jay Ingram's new book is called The Velocity of Honey. Thanks for the sweet story, Jay. Thank you. On the next Living on Earth, the miracle of Madagascar. Madagascar is a kind of science fiction world. You know, every science fiction writer tries the tale of alternate worlds. You know, what would happen if time broke its banks and came to the present down a different channel? Well, Madagascar is just like that. Join us as we explore this island off the east coast of Africa, home of the most unusual collection of plants and animals in the world, and learn what scientists and farmers are doing to keep it that way. Maintaining Madagascar, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a sample of what you'll hear next week from Madagascar. Producer Dan Grossman recorded this pack of lemurs during his recent expedition to the island. Produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Brianna Asbury, Kevin Friedahl, and Emily Torgrimson. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.